Good evening and welcome again to our Bible study series that we are doing in the book of Acts. We are in part 8 of what will ultimately be a 12-part series. Uh, for those that might be just joining us, these are uh, recorded and we also have written notes for all of this study. Uh, so any of the previous studies that you've missed, you can always find that material uh, in several different places. You can go to our main website, which is New Life Church, all one word, newlifechurch-md.org, and then look for the uh, notes and the recordings there. You can follow us live on Wednesday nights at 7.30, either by telephone or online at mixlr.com, and follow the broadcast name New Life Church. The recordings of all of these studies are also available there if you prefer to uh, download them from MixLR. Okay, here we go. We are, as I mentioned, in part 8. We're coming toward the end of chapter 14 in the book of Acts, and hopefully we will be able to advance into chapter 15 tonight. Um, we ended last time uh, on verses 26 to 28 in Acts 14, and I want to read those verses again as this sort of closes out the 14th chapter. And then we're going to lead right into Acts chapter 15, which is kind of a lengthy parenthesis in between Paul's first and second missionary journeys. So, here we go, Acts 14, verses 26 to 28. If you are following along in the outline notes, this is on page 160, and it's Roman numeral D, where we're picking up from last time. It says, From Italia they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. And as we mentioned last time, this effectively marks the end of their first apostolic mission or what we're calling their first missionary journey. They started in Antioch, Syria. They've now made one big loop back to Antioch. And as always, whenever they completed a mission, they met with the church and gave testimony of what God had accomplished through them on that particular trip. Notice they don't boast about all the great things they did. It says they reported all that God had done through them. Good to remember that. When we give testimonies, we're not boasting about what we've done. We're acknowledging God used me, God used us, but all glory to God. It's what God did through them. And the phrase we want to really continue to look at a little more tonight 
follows after that, how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. How he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. God opens doors and God closes doors. He's the great doorkeeper. And it's very interesting that the apostles recognized they didn't open that door. God did. It wasn't something where they sat down in a planning session and decided, you know, on our next trip we're going to open up the door to the Gentiles. This was something supernaturally done by the Holy Spirit, and they acknowledged that. And we want to really talk about this at some length tonight because it is so profound and so important, and it's also mysterious how at some point in time, God decided, now we're going to open the door for Gentiles to come in to salvation. And we saw back in Acts 13, there was a point in time when Paul and Barnabas were ministering in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. I I hate to keep mentioning this, but it's a little bit confusing. This is a different place from Antioch, Syria. Pisidian Antioch was one of the many cities they had visited on their trip. In Pisidian Antioch, they had preached the gospel as they always did, first to the Jews in the synagogue. And the Jews there rose up against them, rejected them, and rejected the word of God. And just to refresh our memories, here's what took place, reading again from Acts 13, verses 46 to 48. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. This is after the opposition. We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it, and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. Then they begin to quote a messianic prophetic passage from Isaiah indicating that they were actually fulfilling this prophecy. Verse 47, For this is what the Lord has commanded us, quote from Isaiah, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Normally understood to be fulfilled through the Messiah, Jesus. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. But they're quoting it in the context that they have now told these Jews, okay, you rejected the word of God, now it's time for us to turn to the Gentiles with the message of the good news. Verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. We cannot underestimate the significance of this moment in time. Paul would later write about this at some length, particularly in his epistle to the Romans. He also talks about it in Ephesians, 
chapter 2 and chapter 3, this great mystery of how God broke down the middle wall between Jew and Gentile and allowed the Gentiles to come through the door of faith. That's the phrase we're examining here. The apostles, when they returned to Antioch, they reported that God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Paul would explain that much, much deeper in Romans chapter 11. And I would uh, urge you to read the entire chapter. We're not going to take the time to do that. We're just going to pick out a couple of key verses here. But in Romans 11, Paul explains how Israel's rejection of the gospel caused a temporary hardening or a temporary blindness to come upon them and in turn a temporary opening of the door of salvation for the Gentiles. I emphasize the word temporary in both cases. It was a temporary hardening of Israel, a temporary opening of the door of faith for the Gentiles. Let's read a little bit, and perhaps we can then understand this more clearly. Romans 11, I'm going to be reading verses 11 and 12, and then we're going to skip over a bunch of stuff and go down to verses 25 and 26. Romans 11, 11. Again I ask, did they, in context, he's talking about the Jews, Israel, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. Verse 12, But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? Verse 25, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so, all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. Now, there's quite a bit of theology in these four verses that we just read. Let me try to simplify it as best I can. Paul starts off talking about Israel's rejection of Christ and refers to it as their transgression. They actually transgressed. They sinned in rejecting their own Messiah, Jesus. But he asked the question, did Israel stumble so far as to fall beyond recovery? His answer is pretty clear. Not 
at all. Now, there's a fairly popular theology out there that's false. It's, it's blatantly, patently false, and I want to make sure everybody understands this. It's sometimes referred to as replacement theology. It goes something like this. Israel rejected God, they rejected their Messiah, they rejected the good news, so God cast them off and replaced them now with the Gentile church. False, false, false. Paul answers that in one sentence. Did Israel stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? No, not at all. And if you read all of Romans 11, you'll see that the so-called replacement theology cannot possibly be correct. God is not finished with Israel yet. He uses very carefully the word temporary when he refers to their blindness or their hardening. Indeed, there has been a temporary hardening, a temporary blindness, but temporary it is. It'll come to an end, and then God will continue His program with the Jews, Israel. So let's be very clear about this. God did not replace Israel with something else. We have two different entities here. We have Israel, and we have the Gentiles. Matter of fact, there are three distinct entities mentioned in the New Testament. You have the Jews, you have the Gentiles, and then you have the church. The church is made up of both Jews and Gentiles who have believed in Jesus the Messiah, been baptized in water, filled with the Holy Spirit, united together as one body, Jew and Gentile, to become the church, the body of Christ. The Jews who are not yet saved, they have experienced a temporary hardening or blindness. The Gentiles who have not received Christ, they're also lost. So we have unsaved Jews, unsaved Gentiles, and then we have saved Jews and Gentiles who both make up the church together. Here's the question again. Did Israel stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, their rejection of their Messiah, God opened the door of faith, the door of salvation for the Gentiles to make Israel envious or jealous. Because of the Jews' transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. Remember what Paul told them in Pisidian Antioch. Okay, you rejected the word of God, we're going to turn to the Gentiles now with the good news. You've judged yourselves unworthy of 
eternal life. Back to Romans 11, verse 12. But if their transgression means riches for the world, meaning the Gentile world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, their loss is because they've been temporarily blinded. In, in essence, um, the door has been closed for them temporarily. So that's a loss for the Jews, but that loss means riches for the Gentiles. How much greater riches will their fullness bring when the Jews again have their eyes opened and receive Jesus as their Messiah. Now, on to verse 25 here in Romans 11. I do not want you, he's writing now to the believers in Rome, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery. It's a mystery. He calls it a mystery in Ephesians chapter 3 also, that God was allowing Gentiles to be saved. Probably most of the people that are listening to this Bible study are Gentiles. (laughs) You should take a pause right here and thank God that he did this. Otherwise, you and I were excluded from God's grace, his mercy, his salvation. We had nothing to do with the promises of God. It was only for Israel. But God stepped down into time and opened the door of faith for the Gentiles. It's a mystery. It's a mystery how he broke down this wall of partition that was between Jew and Gentile for centuries. God put that wall there and God broke it down. God locked the door and then he unlocked it. He opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Verse 25 again. I'm taking my time here because this is so important. I do not want you Gentile believers to be ignorant of this mystery. What's the mystery? Israel has experienced a hardening or King James says a blindness, in part. In part. That word literally means partial or temporary. I think a better translation would be a temporary hardening. It's not permanent by any stretch of the the original word here. It's a temporary hardening. And he's telling these Gentile believers, don't get all stuck up and conceited thinking you're superior to the Jews. This is only God's mercy on you that he's allowed you to come in. Israel has experienced a temporary hardening, and listen to the rest, until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. That's an amazing statement. And the scriptures don't really go into a whole lot more detail about that, but it's so specific and so explicit that we have to pause here for a moment and understand what God has actually done. He opened the door 
for Gentiles. It's a temporary opening. He blinded, hardened Israel temporarily until something happens. That's why it's temporary. Temporary is only until something else happens. Until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. That seems to imply that somewhere in God's eternal mind and plan, He has a number. And when that number is reached, bam! The door slams shut again, the times of the Gentiles comes to a close, and He returns His full attention to Israel. It's beyond the scope of our study right now to get into it, into this, but I believe, and I think we can see from Scripture, that that closing of the door to the Gentiles occurs simultaneously with the rapture of the church. Jew and Gentile who have become believers in Jesus Christ, they're evacuated. They're removed in the rapture. And that ushers in a whole new and different dispensation called the seven-year tribulation, or Daniel's 70th week. Until that time, more and more Gentiles are being saved. When the full number has come in, the door shuts, and then all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. I think it's fairly obvious, just from verse 26, that God's not done with Israel yet. And so I think we can eliminate this replacement theology theory from our thinking. God did not replace Israel with the church or with Gentiles. They're two separate entities. Once the church is caught up in the rapture, God removes that temporary hardening or blindness from Israel, and Zechariah says they will finally come to realize what they've done. They will weep when they realize what happened to their Messiah. A spirit of grace and supplications will fall on the whole house of Israel, and something very amazing will happen to the Jewish people during that time. So, let's summarize. Jews rejected, by and large, their Messiah. Some Jews got saved. They've been added to the church. Um, God finally sends a spirit of blindness on Israel. He turns his attention to the Gentiles and opens the door of faith to them. Temporarily blinding or hardening Israel, temporarily opening the door for the Gentiles. But again, I emphasize, it's only temporary until the full number, or King James calls it, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Until that happens. So, 
God opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, He will also close it whenever that last Gentile member is saved, added to the church, and the church is caught up in the rapture. <clears throat> Paul refers to all of this as a mystery. Mystery, again, meaning it's only understood by revelation. We need the Holy Spirit to enlighten our eyes, give us revelation concerning these things, if we are to be able to understand them. As we already explained earlier in this study, each step in the whole process of salvation, there's a mysterious interworking of God and man. It's not all God, it's not all man, it's both. God commands repentance, then He grants repentance. God tells us we must believe. We must believe. Without faith it's impossible to please God. But then He gives us a measure of faith. God calls on us to open our heart to Him. But then the Scriptures teach God must open the heart. Because man is so desperately wicked, so depraved, so fallen, he can't repent, he can't believe, he can't turn to God unless God enables him. And so, it's not either or, it's both. God has to work, man has to work. That's why I love Philippians 2 verses 12 and 13. It says to you and me, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, if that's all the Scripture said, you might think Paul's contradicting himself. I thought salvation was by grace and by faith, not by works. Well, not so fast. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God at work in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. God's already been working in you, now work out what He's working in you. Even Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, salvation is through faith, and faith alone, it's by the grace of God, and by grace alone, has nothing to do with our works. Well, he goes right on in verse 10 and says, but now we've been saved unto good works. So if real grace is worked into our life, then it will also work out, expressing itself in actions. So, there's this mysterious cooperation, if you will, between God and man in the whole process. God opens the heart, then man repents. God grants repentance, we turn away from our sins. God deals us a measure of faith, we start trusting in God. So, there's something mysterious that happens here. God opens the door of faith, but we must go through it. We can't stand there at the door, clapping and cheering and praising God. Oh, what a wonderful thing. God opened the door of faith. Well, now that the door is open, we must go through it. How? By faith. 
We already saw in Acts 11, after the Gentiles in the household of Cornelius got saved, when the church in Jerusalem heard about that, they started praising God, saying, Wow! God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. God granted them repentance. In other words, He enabled them to repent. They were commanded to repent, then He enabled them to do so. Uh, We must believe if we're going to inherit eternal life. But we already saw in Acts 13, they were appointed for eternal life. That's why they believed. So, each step of the way, we see this sort of a hand-in-glove cooperation between God and His grace and power, man and His free will and His response to God. We must respond to God's grace. It must work something in us. Otherwise, Paul says, The grace was in vain. It didn't accomplish any purpose. It didn't achieve any end in our life. All right. As I mentioned, the end of Acts 14 marks the end of this first missionary journey. Now, in Acts 15, we have a rather lengthy parenthesis in between their first journey and the second apostolic mission that would also be launched from Antioch. Which brings us to Acts chapter 15, another very important section of Scripture. This really isn't an apostolic journey or mission. It rather has to do with the settling of a very important doctrinal or theological controversy that arose in the early church. And this brings us to what is commonly referred to as the Jerusalem Council. They had to have a meeting in Jerusalem of all the apostles, all the elders, to settle this question or controversy. Um, We probably won't be able to complete this tonight, but let's at least introduce it. I want to read Acts 15 from verse 1 all the way down to verse 21. Acts 15, 1 to 21. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, According to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done 
through them. Now let's pause for just a second here. Paul and Barnabas had returned to Antioch in Syria. And they would actually spend somewhere between one and two years there teaching, discipling, strengthening the Antioch church before they would leave on their second apostolic mission. During that one to two year period is when this segment also takes place. Notice, Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch, and these men come to Antioch from Judea, teaching, unless you are circumcised according to Moses, you cannot be saved. So, these are Christian believers, and they're teaching the Gentile believers in Antioch You need to be circumcised. You need to follow all the laws of Moses. Otherwise, you can't be saved. So, this of course creates a big controversy. So big that Paul and Barnabas are appointed as representatives along with other believers from Antioch to go to Jerusalem for this big council meeting to discuss this problem. Alright, let's continue from verse 5. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. So we're now in this big council meeting, and these believers, they're called believers, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, stood up and said, Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. Verse 6. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you, that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it 
that the remnant of men may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, that have been known for ages. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Now, this is a rather long passage that we've read, but I wanted you to get the full context of this meeting and the substance of what took place in this council or this meeting. So, we've got a problem. The apostles have been teaching and preaching everywhere they've gone. Salvation is by grace and grace alone. It's through faith in the Lord Jesus. We believe that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved. Suddenly, we have these believers, they're called brothers, they're called believers, from the old party of the Pharisees. Remember, they were very legalistic, they stuck to the letter of the law of Moses and everything. They've now gotten saved, but they're convinced that it's not grace alone, it's not faith alone, we must also continue to keep all of the laws and commandments of Moses. You'd be amazed how timely this portion of Scripture is, even for churches today. There are many, many churches, many, many Christians out here who are totally confused about this. Whole churches have gone astray thinking, oh, well, even though we're Gentiles, we need to keep all of the feasts of Leviticus, we have to keep the Passover, we have to eat kosher food, we have to do everything that Moses commanded, otherwise we're not saved. So, this was the question at hand. It's a huge question. And they knew it. They knew that the consequences of this question were far-reaching. And they better get it right, because if they didn't get it right, it would split the whole church. So, they meet together in Jerusalem, and for some time, they deliberated, they considered all the different sides, and um, really put their hearts and their minds together to find out what is the answer to this question. So Paul and Barnabas, we mentioned, were sent as representatives from Antioch, along with some others, to meet with Peter and James and all the other apostles in Jerusalem to discuss this matter.
So, when the believers from the party of the Pharisees stood up and made this statement, Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses, I want you to notice carefully verse 6. The apostles and elders met to consider this question after much discussion. They didn't just fly off the handle and immediately say, ah, oh, you guys are crazy, you guys are false teachers. No, they realized we better spend some time prayerfully consider this issue. We could learn a lot from this example, because controversies arise in churches. They always will. And there's some real wisdom that we can glean from this. When a controversy arises, we should take time to consider the question. Take time to discuss the issue. Look at all the scriptures. Look at all the different sides. Hear as many different voices as are needed to get a full picture from the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit saying about this issue? Now, Luke, the writer of Acts, understood the profound significance of this controversy. That's why he devotes a whole chapter to this matter. This was not a small thing. This was a big deal. And Luke knew that, and that's why he writes so extensively about the question, the controversy, the council that met in Jerusalem, and how they came to a solution. So, some of the members of this party of the Pharisees rose up in this meeting and expressed their point of view. Very simple. Gentiles have to be circumcised. They got to do all the law of Moses, just like all the Jews. It's presumed, and I think pretty clearly, these were Jews who had become believers in Christ. Because they're called believers. Some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. So, although they've now become Christians, there's still this confusion about what do we do with Moses? What do we do with the law of Moses? And because of their background with the Pharisees, this legalistic uh, Judaism had been so ingrained in them that they didn't see any other option but this one. Okay, that's fine, you believe in Jesus. You still need circumcision, you still need to keep all the feasts, follow all the laws, all the commandments of Moses. Well, we don't have the time to go into great depth, but this is the very issue that Paul addresses at length in his epistle to the Galatians. 
he goes into great depth in his letter to the Galatians, explaining that salvation is based solely on faith in Christ. If you add anything else to that, in an attempt to achieve salvation through observing the law of Moses, through standing on your head, through fasting, or reading the Bible a hundred times, or any other kind of religious work, if you're going to add any kind of works onto faith and faith alone in Christ, Paul says you're under a curse. That's very strong language. He actually pronounced a curse in his letter to the Galatians on any Judaizers, he calls them false brothers in Galatians, who were perverting the gospel of Christ. Those are his words. Perverting the gospel. This was such a serious matter. He uses some of the strongest language in the New Testament. He calls down a curse on anybody who would teach such things. And in Galatians 3, we'll read from verse 10 to 12, and then we'll go back to chapter 1 and see some of these words he uses. First, let's read Galatians 3, 10 to 12. All who rely on observing the law, remember that's what they were saying you need to do, They were even saying Gentiles. Paul is saying it doesn't even matter if you're a Jew. Anyone, all who are now going to rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. That's what it says in the law. If you don't keep everything written in the book, then you're under a curse. You might keep 639 of the 640 laws, ordinances, and statutes, but you miss one, you're still under a curse. So if you're relying on observing the law, you're under a curse. Verse 11. Clearly, No one, Jew or Gentile, no one is justified before God by the law because, and he quotes, the righteous, the just, will live by faith. Not by laws, not by works, by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things, will live by them. Two totally different ways of approaching God, having a relationship with God. Under the law, it was about what you do, your works, your performance. Under the new covenant, it's through faith. The work that we do under the new covenant, is to believe. That's our work. That's our labor, to believe in God, to believe in His promises, to believe in Jesus Christ. Now, 
Let's go back to Galatians 1. I mentioned some of the strongest words in the entire New Testament Paul uses in his letter to the Galatians. And by the way, of all of his epistles, the one with the darkest and most negative tone is his letter to the Galatians. This, this is how serious this question or controversy is. It can determine whether or not a person disqualifies themselves from salvation or falls away from the grace of God. My friend, if you and I fall from grace, what do we have left? Nothing. Nothing. Here's how he opens up Galatians 1 from verse 6 to 9. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Now, I think we all understand there's only one gospel. There's only one Jesus. But he's saying you have so perverted the gospel What you're believing now is a totally different one. And it's really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, Let him be eternally condemned, damned, strong words. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Wow. That's strong language. That's how serious this issue was. This is what they were meeting together in Jerusalem to discuss. Is salvation by faith alone, or do we need to add other things to it? Are we saved simply through the grace of Jesus Christ, or do we also need to keep the law of Moses? So this is the problem at hand, This is what they've met to discuss, and that's why they devoted a great deal of time. We're not told how much, but it says the apostles and elders met to consider this question, and after much discussion, and only then, does Peter begin to address the problem. So, is it by grace alone? Or do we need to add something to grace? When these members of the Pharisee group came down to Antioch preaching this false doctrine, when Paul and Barnabas heard about it, let's read verse 2 again, it says, This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem 
to see the apostles and elders about this question. Paul and Barnabas immediately recognized this was a serious issue. It was challenging the very foundations of the Christian faith. It was not some small side issue. This was a frontal attack on the gospel of grace. And Paul would later express this very clearly in his letter to the Romans. Romans 11 verse 6. If by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Notice that. It's not just the problem of, well, we can add a few little works onto grace and it'll just make it a little nicer. Paul says, no, 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 no. If you're going to add any works to grace, it nullifies grace. It's no longer grace. It actually destroys it. So, it's one or the other. In math, we call this mutually exclusive. You can't have both. One drives out the other. One excludes the other. If by grace, then it's no longer by works. Drives out works. But if it's by works, then grace is gone. Grace would no longer be grace. This was a false teaching. Paul says it's a perversion of the gospel. And the apostles, Paul and Barnabas, felt so strongly about this, it says they were brought into sharp dispute and debate. The Message Bible says fierce protest. The New Living Translation says they argued vehemently with these Judaizers. This was not a casual discussion. These guys were fired up. They were hot. And you know what? I've put a note here. Thank God for Christian leaders like Paul and Barnabas who are passionate and zealous to fight for the essential truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about getting into a big fight over what some little minor thing means in some obscure verse. I'm talking about basic, foundational truths of the gospel. This was a heresy. And if it was allowed into the church, it would have destroyed the church. That's why Paul and Barnabas came into sharp dispute and debate. Fierce protest. Arguing vehemently with these Judaizers. And it's what led to the calling of this Jerusalem council to discuss the matter. <clears throat> Paul and Barnabas, by the way, remember, are apostles. Apostles are sent ones. Here again, we see how they're sent by the Antioch church as representatives for the whole church. They didn't send themselves. They were sent by the church. <clears throat> On their way, they visited a few churches, strengthened the believers there, and finally arrived in Jerusalem. And it says in verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, 
They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders. <clears throat> Notice over and over again these specific groups are mentioned in the book of Acts. The church, the apostles, and the elders. Particularly the apostles and the elders. <clears throat> Excuse me. The apostles and the elders needed to be in this council to discuss such a critical issue. Now, as always, the apostles took the opportunity to give a detailed report of their travels and again, what God had done through them. And it seems that from this point onward, this Jerusalem council was an open meeting. The entire church in Jerusalem was present. For verse 12 it mentions the whole assembly was there. So um, we're not exactly sure when that whole assembly began to gather together, but it did end up being one huge open meeting to discuss this matter. Again, in verses 5 and 6, the meeting is opened up by these um, members of the party, the Pharisees, stating Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. They were believers, but because of their connection with the Pharisee party, there was kind of a mixture of faith and Judaism in their belief system. Luke again expresses the crux of the whole matter. Should Gentile believers be required to keep the law of Moses? As I mentioned, there are many um, groups that have arisen, even in modern times, that have split off from the body of Christ. They keep the law of Moses, they celebrate the feasts, uh, they eat kosher food, they sing in Hebrew, they do all the Hebraic dances, and the majority of the believers in their groups are Gentiles. So you've got Gentiles singing in Hebrew, eating kosher food, keeping the feasts and all the customs and laws of Moses. Luke asks the question, should Gentile believers be required to do all of that? That's the question they have to deliberate and consider. Well, we're out of time for tonight, but I'm going to give you the long answer short. The answer is no. The answer they came up with was no, Gentiles should not be required to do all of that. No way, no how. And we'll see three key speeches that are given by four leaders, first Peter, then Paul and Barnabas, and then James, who address this assembly, and by the time their speeches are done, the whole matter 
has been resolved? And again, the long answer short is no. Gentiles should not and will not be required to keep the law of Moses. We'll have to stop there and pick it up right from this point next time, but this is a perennial question that is still, as I mentioned, a big one in churches today. And I've been a part of some churches that have literally split over this issue. So it's not a small matter. And that's why Paul and Barnabas um, were so fierce about this matter. It's a very important issue that must be understood. Either salvation is through grace and grace alone, or we got to add a little bit of Moses here and a little bit of other things there, or you cannot be saved. What is in question here is salvation. Is a person required to do anything other than believe in Jesus Christ to be saved? That's what we'll look at in much more detail next time. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you tonight for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you for the good news of grace. I thank you for apostles like Paul and Barnabas who fought, who fought fiercely and vehemently to defend this foundational truth that salvation is through faith and it's by grace alone. Not by any works that we do, only by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, help us to be clear. Help us to be firm on this point, lest we also be confused or even deceived into thinking somehow we have to add something to what was already finished on the cross of Calvary to secure our salvation. Thank you, O God, that the result of this meeting was that they didn't want to make it difficult for Gentiles to be saved. God, I thank you tonight that it's not difficult to be saved. A child can do it. All you require us to do is repent, turn from our sins, turn to God, and receive the free gift of eternal life. Oh, Father, we thank you tonight for this marvelous gift of salvation. Help us to cherish that gift. Help us to understand the importance of this gospel of grace that the apostles in the early church were fighting to defend, and they were able to fight off every challenge, every perversion that might have come to attack it. Help us to stand firmly on this foundation that salvation is by grace and by grace alone. It's through faith and faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. God bless each and every one who's with us tonight in this study. Let this word be implanted deeply in our hearts and minds. Help us 
to be able to rightly divide the word of truth and to be able to explain these things accurately to others so that they can also stand firmly on the bedrock of Jesus Christ, our salvation. Lord, bless each one tonight. Keep us as the apple of your eye under the blood of Jesus, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, as we wait and watch and pray, preparing for your soon and imminent return. Bless and keep each one. Make your face shine upon us. Be gracious to us. Oh God, lift up the light of your countenance on, on each one and give us your peace. Your shalom tonight. In Jesus' name we pray.